As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your minute has made 10 minutes more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your minute has made five minutes. And he said to him, you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your minute, which I have kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you were a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the minute from him, and give it to the one who has the ten minutes. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minutes. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not sent, or has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is the word of the Lord. Father, you are truly the giver of every good gift, for you are holy and infinitely good. Today we gather as your people to receive the gift again of your holy word. And would you grant us the grace to hear your word and to respond to it with a heart of gratitude, knowing that apart from you, we would have no ability to understand it and even no affection for it. Cultivate in us today a heart that is more ready to serve our good and generous King as we await His blessed return. And all God's people said, Amen. This morning, I need to first confess that I have recently had what we'll call a little disagreement with someone on our staff. A staff member will remain anonymous. It's, it's Lucas. Uh, and it started earlier this month when I walked into the office that we shared together. And to my surprise, what did I hear? But Christmas music being played over the speakers. Now, now don't get me wrong, I am all about getting into the Christmas spirit, especially now that it's, in, it's after Thanksgiving. We already got our, our tree up yesterday. But on November 1st, for Christmas music, I think it's just too soon, too soon. In my view, there are certain things in life that can only be properly enjoyed until after a certain sequence of events takes place, right? For example, you cannot eat your pumpkin pie before you have had your Thanksgiving meal. I think you need to wait until Christmas morning until you can enjoy opening, we'll just say, a majority of your presents. And you certainly need to wait until Thanksgiving before you can enjoy 
Christmas music. Again, just, just my opinion. But I understand that there are some here today that may find it uh, hard to wait. And if you're in that camp this morning, there is good news for you. Because I think you'll be able to sympathize with the crowds that Jesus is addressing in this passage this morning. These crowds just couldn't wait for Jesus to take up his rightful throne in Jerusalem. But before he could do that, we know he first needed to take up his cross. This overrealized excitement from the crowd, as we'll see, is what prompts Jesus to teach a final parable before he enters into Jerusalem. And before we dive into this amazing parable, it's, it's first we important to take note of where we are at in the book of Luke. Uh, we've been in Luke for a very long time, um, and if you were here with us last week, you might remember that Jesus is in the town of Jericho, which is again about a day's journey or so from Jerusalem, and he has just stayed at the house of Zacchaeus and is now preparing for his final journey up into the holy city. Now, I say it's essential that we note the setting is because the setting helps us understand both the parable and helps us to know that in Luke's gospel, we are on the cusp of a very big shift in the book. All the way back in Luke chapter 9, we had preached through uh, the time, and it says that in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, here we are. Ten chapters later, and the city of Jerusalem will soon see the face of Christ. And the rest of the Gospel of Luke that we'll pick up on uh, next year uh, will be the focus. Uh, we'll focus primarily on the last week of Jesus' life where he will be delivered to die and then rise again on the third day. Even though Jesus has predicted his death and resurrection to his disciples on three separate occasions in the Gospel of Luke, they, along with the crowds, still did not understand what was about to take place. Luke tells us that their misunderstanding is the occasion for t Jesus telling this parable. We can see this right in verse 11. Look down at verse 11 with me. As they heard these things, he proceeded, at being Jesus, to tell a parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Now, I think we can sympathize with the crowd's excitement, for as we've seen, they've seen the authority of the kingdom that Jesus is ushering in as he exercises supreme rule over the darkness, as he casts out demons. They had seen the power of his kingdom as he heals the sick and even raises the dead. They had seen the truth of his kingdom as his teaching silenced the proud and, give, and gave hope to the humble. They had seen the heart of his kingdom as Jesus forgives sin, as he welcomes children and outcasts of society and calls all sinners to come to him and find rest. And now they were sure as they neared Jerusalem that they expected to see the full force of his kingdom, which in their minds meant defeating the Romans, unseating their oppressive overlords, and restoring Israel to its former glory when King David and King Solomon ruled many, many years ago. Yet as we know, they were getting ahead of themselves. They had failed to understand that the Scriptures had taught the Messiah must suffer first to save the people from their sins. Jesus has come first as a suffering Savior, then He will come as a conquering King. They didn't understand this necessary sequence of events before he enters 
uh, Jerusalem. And so Jesus, uh, seeing this misunderstanding, he tells them a parable. And this parable is there to help them understand his own calling and theirs, understand his character, and how they should conduct themselves as they wait for this glorious kingdom that is to come. And my hope today for us all is that we, as we study this, this passage, that we would recognize that we are servants of a good and a generous king. And while we wait for our king, we are to faithfully steward everything he has entrusted to us, lest we find ourselves cut off from his generous blessing. Now, I've broken the parable down in three sections. If you're taking notes, uh, first, we'll see the call and coronation of the king in verses 12 to 14. Second, we'll look at the character of the king in verses 15 to 23. And finally, we'll see the command of the king in 24 through 27. So let's look first at verses 12 to 14 again in the call, coronation of the king. Look at verse 12. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas, mina, mina, whatever. And he said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. If you've been with us in Luke, we have seen that Jesus teaches his disciples about the nature of the kingdom of God, often by using parables, these little short stories that kind of help reflect and teach a greater spiritual truth. And Jesus always tells these parables, um, making them very relatable to his audience as he uses illustrations from the daily life. So you think about the parable of Um, the lost sheep and shepherding or farming or mustard seeds or weddings and banquets, things that they would understand. And this parable, I'm contending, is no different. But it's maybe just a little more difficult for us to understand uh, in the 21st century. In this parable, we are first introduced to a nobleman, meaning simply a man of noble birth. Think about a, a prince. And this nobleman has to go to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom. Now, what does this mean? Well, in order to understand this, I have to give you just a little brief history lesson. Uh, Please don't nod off, uh, but say this is very exciting. I actually, I I think it is pretty amazing. In those days, Israel and the surrounding lands were occupied by who, right? The the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire was very shrewd as they ruled, for they, in order to keep power stable across all the lands that they uh, had control over, they would set up little proxy kings or vassal kings in these different places uh, that they conquer to rule over their empire. And they were happy for this little setup as long as these kings that they set up kept the peace and kept the taxes flowing into Rome. One of these deputized kings was the King Herod the Great, again, who was not so great, but he was one of these guys. Uh, and he, but after he died in 4 BC, he divided his kingdom among his sons and named his son Archelaus a successor of the region of Judea that includes Jerusalem. But before Archelaus could be officially enshrined uh, as king of this region, he had to take a journey. He had to take a journey to Rome in order to officially be recognized and given the title and authority. Does that make sense? So almost universally, commentators believe that this is the history that Jesus has in mind when he tells the story. 
especially because Archelaus had built a huge, lavish palace, as well as an aqueduct, in the city of Jericho, the same city where we find Jesus in our text. So it's very likely that these structures are in view or in the mind of the people as Jesus told this parable. Furthermore, the famous Jewish historian Josephus documents that Archelaus was a bad dude. He was a brutal uh, ruler, and when he goes off to Rome to receive this authority from, from Rome, the Jews actually sent a delegation of people to go after him to protest his reign and rule over them to the Romans. Uh, unsuccessfully, they did this. So hopefully you can kind of see uh, the connections here and that the context helps us to, to lead us to right understanding. But I also hope that it leads you to just marvel at the mastery of Jesus and the way he tells stories and how he teaches. Uh, one last thing, uh, this, also, this parable, you probably saw this, it sounds very familiar to the parable of the talents. So I believe because of the setting and because of what I, what I just, the context, I think we should understand this as a separate parable with a unique context, with a unique emphasis, even if we do see some, some overlap here. Now, looking back at the text, we, we see this nobleman, he goes off to a far country to receive the kingdom that is rightfully his. So he's going to leave a kingdom that is his to go receive this authority and then come back. And before he does that, he calls 10 servants to himself and gives each of them a mina, which is about three months' wages. And what does he do? He tells them to engage in business, right? Put the money to work, invest it. Uh, the nobleman expects that when he returns, he's like, hey, the economy's good. When I get back, you should be able to have some, some return for uh, a yield with the return that I've, that I've given you. And it's important to note that again, all uh, 10 servants that are here, they all are given the same wage and they're given the same instruction. And as we'll look at later, this nobleman, I, I don't think he's as interested in the finances, but rather truly the fidelity and the faithfulness of his servants. We see in our text, the servants are not the only ones in view as the nobleman prepares to leave. We are also introduced to this other group of people, these citizens in verse 14, who do not want the nobleman to rule over them. So much so that they send a delegation after the nobleman, protesting his right to rule over them. See the connection? See the, sounds familiar to the history that we just recounted. So what are we to make of the opening of this parable? <clears throat> well, as always, it's always important as when we inter interpret parables, not to push every detail as far as we can or meaning into every little part of it. Yet I think right at the beginning, I think it's pretty clear that there are some clear allegorical connections that we can make. First, I think it's clear that we should understand this nobleman as, as Jesus. Jesus, the greater son of David, born in Bethlehem, which is the city of David, that he is the rightful heir to the throne in Jerusalem. But before he takes up this visible forever seat, uh, this forever throne and rule in the new heavens and the new earth, he must first go away. And we see this in the Gospels, that Jesus must first ascend to his Father, be coronated as the King, and given the name that is above every name, and be given all dominion of an everlasting kingdom. Even just thinking about this, I couldn't help but think of Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7. Look what Daniel sees. 
says, I saw, as being Daniel, in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So we see here, like all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. And one day, it will, this authority, this power will be made visible for all to see. But before then, he has called his disciples, both then and both today, to steward all that rightfully belongs to him. Secondly, I think it's clear that the servants in this passage represent all who would recognize Jesus' right to rule and are called today to steward all that the master has given them. These are people who would claim to be Christians. All that we have, our money, our possessions, our families, our lives, even the gospel message given to us by God and ultimately on loan for him that we may steward for the good of our master, King Jesus, who is one day to come. More on the servants later. And lastly, what do we do with these unruly citizens? How are we supposed to understand them? Well, I think in the immediate context, I think this group foreshadows the opposition that Jesus is about to face in Jerusalem, right? In one week's time, the crowds in Jerusalem will be asked a question. What question? Shall I crucify your king? And they will protest and respond to Pilate and say, we have no king but Caesar. And then they will call for Jesus' crucifixion. And as Jesus hangs on the cross, they will again protest the inscription that is rest over his head that reads, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And they will protest that he only claimed to be king of the Jews. That's the immediate context, but yet, as we know, opposition to Jesus' right to rule does not begin and end with these crowds um, in this uh, section or the certain Jewish religious leaders in the first century. No, there is protest and rejection of Jesus' right and rule around the world, in every land, in every people group that oppose his rule over them. Right? We can't watch the news for more than a minute or walk through the mall for any length of time and not see that the world daily opposes the reign and rule of Jesus, whether it's the rejection of his design for men and women, whether it's the disregard for his word in the scriptures, or even just the way his name is used in common vulgarity. And I think we can even see this rejection most clearly when I think the general consensus of our world today is that the greatest authority, the most ultimate authority in our lives is us, is our own feelings, is our own intellect. And if that's the highest authority, then it's, it's also a rejection of Jesus' authority. And even for, even for professing Christians like us, I think it's really easy for us to live in such a way that, do, that, that does little, that gives little thought to the authority of, of Jesus um, outside maybe even of, of these walls that we think very little or think that we don't, or, or that we organize our lives um, according to, to his word rather than ours. Uh, if you're a teenager or you're a, a kid here today, I want you to hear this especially. 
Um, I think the world and our own hearts, and you'll see this in, in the, probably the movies you watch or the friends you have, they, they will tell you that true joy and, and freedom is only felt when you are truly free from all authority, free from the authority of your parents, free from institutions like the church, and free from the authority of God's Word. That once you have moved beyond those things, once you've graduated above the authority and that you're now your own authority, then that's where true freedom finally is felt. But the, what the world doesn't tell you is that this freedom is actually a mirage. It's not real freedom, for we are all still slaves to our own sin, and we are all truly slaves to the grave. The only one who has authority over a grave, over the grave, that being Jesus, right? The one who has made you and the one this morning is calling you to live in service to Him under His protection and under His good authority. Uh, we have been doing uh, the New City Catechism with uh, our Castling kids, um, and we've done this at home. And the first question and answer uh, helps us kind of take this truth and, and dive it um, and take it deep and accentuate this truth. The first question, kids, maybe if you're here, you remember it. What is your only comfort or hope in life and in death? What's the answer? That we are not our own, but belong to God. True freedom and true joy comes from sitting under the authority of King Jesus who made us and who we belong to. And my prayer at Castleton is that we would be people who would delight to serve and order our lives under our good and gracious King because we know Him as a good and a generous King. Which then brings us to our second point. Look at verses uh, 15 uh, through 19, and we'll see our king's character clearly upon his return, the character of the king. Verse 15, when he, the nobleman, returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minus more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. Then the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. So the nobleman, now presumed king, has returned from his long journey, having received the kingdom, and he calls the servants to give account for how they have stewarded the money he entrusted to them. We saw the first servant, he has a good report. He took the master's mina and made 10, ten minas, a nice you know, 1,000% return on his investment. All the financial advisors out there say, yeah, great investment, well done, faithful servant. Uh, his master, clearly happy with his result, praises him, well done, good servant. But he doesn't just give him verbal praise, right? He rewards him with authority to rule over 10 cities in his kingdom. Right? He's come back, he needs help to steward the kingdom that he's just been given, and he gives his servant authority over ten cities. Similarly, the second servant comes to the master with making five more. The master, again, pleased with his return and rewards him with the authority over five cities in his kingdom. Now, as we see this interaction with the king and these servants, 
I think we are meant to be astounded by the wealth of generosity of the king. I think it's good to focus on the servants, and we will in good time, but I think the main point is for us to focus on the generosity of the king. And just, just imagine how you would feel if you were one of these servants. You know, you were diligent with a three-month salary, made some good investments, and as you give it back to the king, he says, great job. How would you like Indianapolis? Chicago. How about Cincinnati? How about Louisville? How about Detroit? Oh, you don't want Detroit? Okay, how about, how about Carmel? How about Fishers? How about Muncie? The reward is both, we're meant to say, this is so over the top of what I just produced. This is meant to point to, wow, this king is generous. Yeah, I was faithful, but whoa, the point is the king um, has been given us lavishly to his servants, more than they could have ever imagined. And this reward for faithfulness, I think, sounds very similar to what Jesus declares to the church in Thyatira in Revelation 2. Listen to what Jesus says to this church. The one who conquers, perseveres, who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Now, it's, it's hard for us to wrap around our minds around the gift of reigning with Jesus. We don't feel like we're equipped or ready for that sort of responsibility in the new heavens and the new earth, but one day we'll understand that. But I think the clear principle that we're supposed to get from this parable is the goodness and the abundant generosity of the king. And these servants clearly worked in his absence as those who knew that they served a good and generous king. And I think this is our experience when we have worked for a good boss, right? How many of you have had a really good boss or worked for a good boss? When you know your boss is willing to, you know, do the dirty work with you, to serve, that is fair and is, you know, generous around Christmas time with, with their employees, right? You want to work well for that boss. You know full well that my work will be rewarded, that my work is not for nothing. And hope you see that this is King Jesus. He is the one you serve. He is a, he's the best boss, and he delights to bless his faithful workers. Yet as we see in our text, not all the servants had this image of King Jesus in this way, or their, their servant, or their, the nobleman, right? If you look at this third servant, he shared a different view of their master, which I think proves the point, as we'll see, that what you believe about the character of the God you serve will transform the manner in which you serve. I'll say it again. What you believe about the character of who, of what God you serve will transform the manner in which you serve Him. Look at verse 20, we'll see that clearly. Then another came, another servant, saying, Lord, here is your mina. I have kept, I have, uh, kept laid away in the handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a hard and severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Then why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with some interest." 
So what does this servant think about the king? Right? He says he's a severe man, a strict and exacting man who seems like the servant believes he's a, a, a master who's impossible to please, impossible to serve. He sees his master both as a tyrant, as a thief, taking what he did not deposit and reaping what he did not sow. Yet we have just seen that this is not a right assessment of the king because we have just seen that he gave his servants a generous reward with their modest return. But in his fear, this servant does not invest the mina given to him, but he just tucks it away, hides it in his handkerchief. Sounds a lot like Adam and Eve, right, who hid after they had been exposed in sin and started making excuses for their failures. This servant, right, he even blames his master for his own laziness and his own failure. And we'll see here, the king will not accept this servant's excuses. Instead, he points out that the servant doesn't even live by his own words, by his own beliefs, his own theology. He basically says, hey, if, if you believe this about my character, if you believed I was a severe man, why didn't you just put the money in the bank and let it earn at least a small amount of, of interest, that at least I would be happy with some, some return? But instead, the servant's wrong understanding of his master's character led him not to work harder, but to work less. Um, in his book, uh, Impossible Christianity, uh, author Kevin Young comments on this parable, and he rightly sa- I think he rightly says this. He says, being a disciple of Jesus is not easy, but when we think Christianity is impossible, or if we think that Jesus is an impossible boss, we normally don't do more for Christ, we do less. We give up without much of a fight, figuring that even if God acquits us as a judge, he can never be pleased with us as a father. And I wonder if many of us hear this parable like this, and instead of seeing ourselves in the first two servants, or see Jesus as the first two servants did as a kind, generous king, we see ourselves sympathizing with the third servant, maybe seeing our heavenly father like we did our own earthly fathers, who seemed maybe impossible to please, or who were never happy. So, It didn't make sense to even try, because the same result would happen either way. I wonder if you even see the Christian life like this, as a series of perpetual failures, thinking about how little we we pray, how much we fail to pray as we want to, or how we should read our Bibles more uh, in the way we like. All of this in, in view of a God looking down at us with a disapproving look maybe that you have received from family or from friends before. And brothers and sisters, I just want to plead with you today that this is not the character of the God we serve, and it is not God's posture towards His children. If, if we are ever going to feel the freedom to take risks for the Lord and find joy in stewarding the lives that He has given us, we must first make certain that we know the character of the God who made us. And remind ourselves that He is a God who is slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. He rejoices over His people with gladness, and He quiets us with His love. 
He's a father who can show compassion to his children because he knows our frame. He knows our weakness. Our God is the giver of all good gifts, and he has secured eternal life for all who trust in him. Uh, when I was eight years old, uh, my dad taught me how to mow the lawn. And I will still, I don't know if I've shared this before, but I remember the first day mowing my lawn with my dad. And we, have a, we had a big lawn, probably like you know, three quarters of an acre lawn. And there was one line where you could, you know, the key was, you know, keep that, keep that tire right, you know, right over the line so you can. So I'd, I'd go back and I remember making my first line and I'd go back and, and that line was like, like, we did one of these. And my dad, you know, he did not turn to me and say, look at this. Look at that line. It's the worst line I've ever seen. Give, give it to me. You, you go sit over there. No. What, what did he do? He's like, hey, it's your first try, man. Nice job. Let's, let's, let's do it again. You got a bunch of more times to try. And I hope that that is the way that you see that the Lord sees you in your efforts to please and encourage him. He's not ready to condemn. He's ready to He's ready to encourage and to help and to teach as you walk this Christian life. When you know that this is the character of the God and the character of the King you serve, you can work hard for Him, stewarding all that He has given you and knowing that your future is secure. When King Jesus returns, He will, be a, he will abundantly and be ready to reward His faithful servants with more than we could ever ask or imagine. So, brothers and sisters, even this morning, I would encourage you to examine what you think about the character of your king and what your thoughts about God and how, uh, and how you serve him and the thoughts of God and how those thoughts affect the way that you, that you serve him. Yourself, Do you think that God is impossible to please? Do you see him as a God who delights to reward his children or do you see him as a tyrant who is just always ready to punish I think only one of these describes the God that we read about in the scriptures. Yet you may be wondering, that sounds really good, Pastor. I love those passages about God's kindness and his love, his generosity. But what about all those passages in the Bible about his judgment? Especially kind of the gruesome ending that we kind of have to this parable. Well, I'm glad you asked. Yes, we, we, need, we need to affirm the Lord is gracious, he's merciful, abounding in steadfast love. But at the end of that passage in Exodus 34 that describes the character of God, it also says that our God is a just God, and He will not allow sin to go free. He will not let sin enter into His kingdom. Which brings us to our last point. Number three, the command of the king. Look at verse 24 and 27. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. So Jesus concludes his parable with the warning to those who are unfaithful and to those who oppose his rule, that they will not be given a free pass into his kingdom, but they will receive just reward for their consequences, or consequences for their actions. And we see these two commands of the king, the two judgments 
First, to the unfaithful servant, he takes his mina away and gives it to the faithful servant. The generosity of the king continues to be lavished upon the faithful, and the blessing the unfaithful servant had been given is now taken away. His failure to respond rightly to what was revealed to him and given to him is now taken from him, though proving that he never truly knew his master. Second, we see that the king give the command to vanquish his enemies as he establishes a kingdom of peace and of justice in his rule. So how should we understand these commands of the king? Well, I think the Lord gives us some difficult images to help us to realize that, yes, our God is merciful and gracious, but he is not a God who will be mocked, and we will truly reap what we sow. God proved his loving and merciful character to us by sending his only son to die in the place of his enemies. For while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But we must not presume upon this kindness. We must not think we can live in an utter disdain for his authority and squander everything that he has given to us and just assume we get a nice easy pass and a, well, and a good pat on the back as we enter this kingdom. Only those who have received his salvation by grace through faith can expect to enter into the joy of their master, for they know him, and they know who he is and what he has done for them, and they have delightfully and dutifully served him all of their days. Now, the good news for all of us here this morning, with that warning in mind, is that we don't live in verse 27. We live in between verse 14 and 15. King Jesus has not returned yet. He has not called us to account, and therefore we can conclude that it is His kindness that He has delayed His coming, that there's still time, beginning today, to recognize His authority, recognize the character of Christ, and diligently and intentionally steward all that He has given us. It's God's kindness that leads us, ought to lead us to repentance, to repent of all the other authorities that we have served and submit ourselves to the good authority of King Jesus and do so today. For we are told that one day, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And if we're going to do that one day, why not start doing that today? In closing this morning, I, th- I want us just to consider which of the three responses to the king that we saw in this parable do you currently find yourself in? Maybe you're here today, you just showed up to church for the first time in a while, you're in town with your family, um, and you'd admit that your life looks like one who has consistently opposed the rule and reign of Jesus. Maybe you've resisted his authority or ignored his instructions most of your life. And if that's you, I would, just, I would urge you this morning to acknowledge the authority of King Jesus who conquered the grave and would implore you to submit your life to him. What does that mean? What does it look like doing? Well, you do this first by confessing your, your need of him, confessing your sins before him, and declaring that there is only hope, the only hope you have in life and in death is in Jesus Christ. It's the hardest thing you'll ever have to do. It may mean leaving family. It may mean leaving friends. It may mean saying no to the pleasure. It, may, it will mean saying no to many of the pleasures of this world. 
but it is the best thing you can do. It won't be easy, but it's worth it. For there is no one who is more loving, there is no one who is more gracious, there is no king that is more just or generous, there is no better one to serve than the king who laid down his life for you and is one day coming again. But maybe you're here and you've grown up in the church your whole life. Maybe you've been acquainted with Jesus and His gospel. Maybe you're even baptized and pledged your allegiance to Him at that moment. But if you're honest this morning, maybe you see yourself in the unfaithful servant, that you've seen God as an impossible master. And so you just kind of go, go through life, maybe with go through the Christian motions, uh, maybe with just kind of this low level of guilt that you carry, just trying not to mess things up too bad. So when he calls you to account, you can kind of just slip in. And if that's you today, I, I, want you, I want to call you this morning to re-examine your thoughts about God and his gospel. Do you believe and truly believe that the hardest work that, you need, that, that has been done has already been done for you on the cross? That you've been saved, not by your works, but by grace alone, through faith alone. And that God has created you for good works that you are to walk in. And so therefore, we don't have to be governed by fear or be given to laziness, but we can be transformed by the gospel to work hard, think creatively with what God has entrusted to us, and making sure that we recognize the character and quality of our King and the one you serve. But if you realize, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not there, I've, I've, not seen, I've not seen Jesus rightly, then we can often lead that lazy life, hoping to get in, but actually recognizing that we truly haven't believed at all, because we never truly knew, knew Christ. Now, I would venture to guess, if you're here today, you would think, ah, there's this third group, this, this group of faithful servants that no one's really in the faithful servants. And if, and if there are, I'm not supposed to say that I'm in it because I'm supposed to think I'm not that way or because I got I to feel guilty, right? But say, it's not a good sermon unless everyone feels a little convicted or a little bad uh, every, every time. Right? No, I, I don't think that's right. And I don't think that's what Jesus intends for this passage. Yes, it is true. We will never perfectly obey the one who did that perfectly was Jesus. But that doesn't mean that we can't truly obey and truly walk in faithfulness towards God. I know, and I know Tommy would affirm this, that there are many of you in this church, many who have loved and cared for my family, that I would say those are people that are true examples of faithful service to the king. You are people who serve your king with delight because you know he's gracious and generous and you steward your lives faithfully to the glory of King Jesus. No, you don't do it perfectly, but you do it faithfully. And God has given us examples for us to point to and say, yes, that is a faithful servant. That's something that you can know today. And I think Jesus' word to you today is this, well done, good and faithful servant. Keep going, keep persevering for your labor for him is not in vain. For whatever you did for the least of these, you did it for me, your king. And when King Jesus returns for his own and his generous reward is received by us, 
you will know that living your life for him was worth every tear, every pain, and every prayer. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. And until that day, may we live in light of his glorious coming. Let's pray. Father, we come before you as your humble servants, thanking you for who you are and what you have done for us in Christ. Help us, Lord, to remember that you are a good and gracious God who is not impossible to please, but delights to equip us to walk faithfully in service to you until you come again. And so we ask that you would help us by your Spirit to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and not the things of this world. And if there is any part of us, any part of our lives that has not yielded to your authority, would you please expose it and would you give us the heart to joyfully submit that to you. For you, Lord, are worthy of all praise and all glory, for you died and are seated at the right hand of the throne of God and are one day coming again to claim what is rightfully yours. And so we pray, come Lord Jesus and make us ready to see you. Amen.